Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we rhyme weird and wonderful science into your mind. I'm Ian Wolfe. This week, the fresh scientists create and recite poetry based on their research. But first up, rats driving cars and Assange in court. Rodent-operated vehicles. Researchers at the University of Richmond in Virginia trained rats to drive tiny cars. Half the rats were raised in an enriched environment closer to the natural habitats, and the other half were raised in laboratory cages. The enriched environments had multiple levels, natural and artificial objects that changed every week, places to hide, and other rats. The researchers built little cars for the rats using the Elegoo Uno Project Smart Robot Car Kit version 3. They attached a clear plastic jar to serve as the cab. A hole cut out of the bottom of the jar served as the windscreen and the opening of the jar was an entrance for the rats. An aluminium plate on the floor inside of the jar was attached to the ground lead of a battery. Copper wire was threaded horizontally across the front window to form three bars and the wire was connected to the power lead from the battery. When a rat positioned itself on the aluminium plate and touched the copper wire, a circuit was completed that sent power to a microcontroller which caused the motors to turn and the car to move forward. The rat could steer the car by choosing which wire to touch. Rats could stop the car by releasing the wire. A black and white checkerboard pattern was put at the end of the arena to show the rats their destination. The rats were rewarded with a small amount of Fruit Loop cereal. A plastic jar similar to the ones on the cars was put into the rats' enclosures a week ahead to get the rats used to it. And the same for the Fruit Loop treats. After four months in their respective enclosures, the rats were trained for five minutes, three times a week, for eight weeks. The researchers measured how long the rats took to get into the jar on the car, how long to make contact with the driving bars to move the car, and the completion of a full drive to the reward station. The rats from the enriched environment were keener to explore the car, quicker to learn how to drive, and better drivers. Researchers trained the rats an extra three weeks and then stopped giving them food rewards. The rats from the enriched environments kept driving the cars for fun, but the rats from the lab stopped driving when the Fruit Loop stopped. Samples of the rats' faeces were collected to determine their levels of stress hormones, corticosterone and DHEA. Samples were collected before training to have a controlled baseline, midway through training, and during the time that food rewards were removed, to get an idea of how relaxed or stressed the rats were. Their emotional resilience. Driving 
relax the rats. The researchers say that having an enriched environment had such a large difference on the rats' ability to learn that the observations can translate into understanding the roles of self-efficacy, emotional resilience and individual variation in uncertain and challenging contexts. The researchers believe that understanding how rats master complex tasks will translate into better understanding of human brain diseases and human-machine interactions. The research may one day help in developing new non-pharmaceutical forms of treatment for mental illness. Perhaps a new way to beat the rat race. Journalism on trial. The first week of the case for extradition of Julian Assange from the UK to the US and the opening accusations are that when reporting on the US military covering up the massacre of civilians, he released uncensored names of US agents on the internet causing the death of some of these agents. That the US military found a copy of these documents on Osama bin Laden's computer after they'd assassinated him, which they say is aiding an enemy of the US. They also accuse Julian Assange of conspiring with Chelsea Manning to break into a military computer and steal documents. The US government's lawyer James Lewis stated in court that the case is about stopping journalists around the world from publishing whatever they want. Aiding the enemy is an identical accusation the US government made against Chelsea Manning in 2013 that was dismissed by the court. Anyone online could have downloaded the document from the internet. A nasty accusation is that Julian Assange caused the death of people named in the documents. At the trial of Chelsea Manning in 2013, Brigadier General Robert Carr, a senior counterintelligence officer, who headed the Information Review Task Force that investigated the impact of WikiLeaks disclosures on behalf of the Defence Department, told the court at Fort Meade, Maryland, that not one person had died as a result of being named in the leaks. It wasn't Julian Assange who first released the uncensored documents listing the names of American agents. It was the computer engineer Daniel Domscheit-Berg who put the encrypted documents with agents' names on the internet for anyone to download, and Guardian journalist David Lee, who published the password so that anyone in the world could read the documents. Why aren't these two men on trial for extradition instead of Julian Assange? Julian Assange at WikiLeaks very carefully redacted the names of agents before publishing any stories. Daniel Domscheit-Berg broke into WikiLeaks headquarters, copied the encrypted file, and then deleted everything on the entire WikiLeaks server temporarily shutting WikiLeaks down. Daniel Domscheit-Berg then uploaded the encrypted file to the worldwide BitTorrent network from his new rival OpenLeaks organisation, apparently set up for no other purpose. There's a video on YouTube documenting that when Julian Assange found out, he immediately phoned the US State Department to warn them, and then put out a press release condemning the action. When Chelsea Manning copied evidence of torture and murder into files she leaked to WikiLeaks, she already had legal access to that network. She had no need to break into it. The affidavit given in evidence actually alleges that Manning asked Assange for help in cracking a system password for a non-user account, with the same security access as her, to disguise her identity. The US would have you think that it's like a bank teller using a different bank teller's password to steal money from the bank. 
it's much more like a bank teller using a photocopier to copy evidence that the bank is torturing and murdering people. Copying evidence of crimes against humanity is not the same as stealing money. Hiding the identity of sources is part of an investigative journalist's job. The family of the judge overseeing the extradition case works for the intelligence community, an open conflict of interest against a fair hearing. The UK government have psychologically tortured Julian Assange, as confirmed by many doctors and the United Nations expert on torture, Nils Melzer, who said psychological torture is being exploited by states to circumvent the more widely understood ban on physically inflicting pain. The US military paid a Spanish company to spy on all of Julian Assange's legally protected conversations with his lawyers and doctors, and paid the Ecuadorian government to steal his legal documents and bring them to the US. In Belmarsh prison for over a year, Julian Assange has been denied access to his lawyers and to read any legal documents. He's also been denied proper medical care while being kept in solitary confinement. Julian Assange would be extradited to a court in Virginia, which has never acquitted someone charged with national security crimes. These cases are heard in Virginia because the juries are drawn from families and friends of employees of the nearby CIA and NSA officers. The fact that the leaks were in the public interest is not a defence against espionage charges. If Julian Assange is spying for the public, then the US government is saying that the public are their enemy. The US government argues that as Julian Assange is an Australian citizen who published in the UK and Europe, he is subject to the restrictions of US laws as if he published in the US, but cannot enjoy the protections of those laws as if he published in the US because he's not a US citizen. That's a major breach of UK sovereignty. The only law he's accused of breaking in the UK was breaking bail by seeking asylum, for which he's already served the maximum 50 days. The US-UK extradition treaty expressly forbids extradition of political prisoners and people who would be tortured or executed in the US. UK extradition laws expressly forbid extradition of political prisoners and people who would be tortured or executed in the US. A forensic psychiatrist has warned that Julian Assange would find a way to commit suicide if the court allowed extradition to the US. In short, Julian Assange is not getting a fair hearing in the United Kingdom, will not get a fair trial in Virginia, and would be treated worse than any prisoner because he will be deemed not under the protection of US law, unlike any other prisoner in the US. His health is already precarious. If he's extradited, Julian Assange will die. Here's the UN Rapporteur on Torture, Nils Melzer. And then we see now how the British judiciary, who has a long tradition of rule of law, a proud tradition of that, has delivered a complete travesty of a trial, where the defendant has not had the right to, to prepare his defense, where he has not had access to his own lawyers, where he's been held in isolation for months, where the UN standards say that any solitary confinement beyond 15 days amounts to cruel and human or degrading treatment and where he has been publicly insulted by judges as narcissists without any basis, where we have court judges refusing to consider objections for conflicts of interest. Even in the UK, he's not going to get a fair extradition trial. So this is no longer in the hands of the judiciary. 
the judiciary is unwilling or unable to deal with this according to the rule of law. This is now in the hands of the public and in the hands of the media to inform the public about what is going on. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The Fresh Science Poetry Challenge. Limericks and haikus from the Fresh Science Sparkler Sessions with Sarah Brooker from Science in Public. Here's Sarah Brooker. We're now moving into the poetry section of the evening. So if anyone's got a limerick or a haiku, and I'm expecting 11 to come up to the stage. A lot of researchers I've found in years of dealing in science and with science prizes is researchers need often a tap on the shoulder. As scientists, they often are humble and they don't like to talk about their research. But researchers, we need you out there. We need you talking about your research even even more so nowadays where a lot of people are out there talking. The media is 24 hours. We need those with expertise out there talking. So please nominate yourself for a prize, not just a science prize, nominate yourself for scientist of the, or, you know, Australian of the year or any other prizes out there. Yeah, go for it. We've got some poetry. Who's lining up? Natalie, you've got a limerick. Yes, great. Scientists, come on up. Over here. Thank you. All right. So, what have we got? Limerick or haiku? There once was a baby named Jane. Her mommy was sad. She felt pain. So they came up with a test so Jane could feel her best and go back to playing fun games. Oh, well done. Good job. Okay, Natalie, what have you got? Limerick or haiku? Uh, Limerick. There was a young scientist called Nat who came to the pub with her cat. She sequenced its genes to find out what it means, and it turns out the cat was a bat. (laughs) Uh, This was definitely a collaborative effort with my research group in the front row here. (laughs) Uh, So there once was a fish in the water, who was shocked by the size of her daughter. The dam made her small, she wasn't warm anymore, and she was thrown back when the fisherman caught her. I'm gonna continue the limerick theme. It turns out that blood cells which clot can worsen TB quite a lot, but drugs just like aspirin can fight TB back and then people won't die from their cough. There was an iconic tea tree, abundant in Western Sydney. But I must confess, there soon will be less, which is really worrying me. (laughs) There once was a farmer from Brazil who needed more land to till. He cut down a tree, his heart filled with glee, for a ranger came in for the kill. (laughs) 
I feel like I'm the odd one out here because I've only done a haiku. Knee ligament tear, great rehab, not surgery, the key to success. Um, okay. There once was a refugee named Amir who struggled with more than his fear. He couldn't fix it and the government was shit. But if we... <laughs> But we could help if we just lend an ear. <laughs> I want to get an, an electric car, but I'm worried it won't, it will go too far. I'll get stuck in the bush and I'll need to give a push. It would help if I just had a charge. <laughs> I've got a haiku as well. So, whooping cough is back. Babies cannot fight it off. Need new vaccine now. Oh, that was brilliant. Well done. Thank you. A big round of applause for our poets this evening. Before we let the scientists go, I'm curious about your experience in the last two days. Were any of you scared before meeting the journalists? yesterday uh yeah so it's like quite uh, it's like quite worrying especially like dealing with like vaccines like how are they gonna like hound you like oh, our vaccines good vaccines blah 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 but no they were like really nice and it was a bit different experience like especially when you're with tv when you're being like interviewed right up close with like the camera but you're not allowed to look at the camera you have to look at them and then also like you're not sure what to do with your arms but it was good Experience, it's like, oh, what do I do with the arms normally? I don't know, yeah. Anyone else? Yeah? I think most of us thought the investor thing was a bit intimidating. So today we had a commercialization advisor from Oz Industry. So it's his job to actually go out and chat to researchers and help them take their technology to market. So you found that intimidating. Why? Yeah, I mean, well, we didn't think in advance that we were going to be pitching for X amount of dollars, and it wasn't really something that we've thought about for most of our research. A couple of people here are really interested in commercialization, but the rest of us haven't really thought about that aspect. And it was hard because he thought we were, like, ready to go and saying, what are you going to spend that money on? Tell me, why do you need that amount? Have you thought about this? What about this? And we were like, ah. Did it make you think about what the potential market could be? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you mean investors or the market for the consumers? Yeah, I mean, well, for me, it's people. But for other people, I think yeah, it was a good, good choice for them to, I mean, good experience to learn more about what, what kind of people to approach to get money for what they're targeting. Anyone change their mind over the course of the day, sort of thinking TV was scary, but it wasn't? So for me, I think the, I wasn't so scared about the reporters, what are they going to, what are they going to say? But, you know, as scientists, we work mostly quite isolated in our offices and we direct our own projects and we get plenty of time. Anytime you're doing anything, you've got plenty of time to, to really think about it and, and really consider it. So the thing that scared me was that media is so fast. They get things done immediately and then they're just gone and they ask you the question once and your answer is recorded forever and you don't get a chance to write a draft and a second draft and a third draft. But I think over the two days, it was really great. We had heaps of practice. And, and the more that you do it, the more that you realize it's, it's not so bad. And actually doing things quickly like that is, can be quite fun. 
Your thoughts, David? Did maths hit it with Channel 7 and Channel 9? Well, I think maths has, has a bit of a difficult time often getting a, a wider outreach. So I think one of the things that was really encouraging for me was how much interest there was from the reporters in reporting on science and talking about uh, research that's happening uh, locally here. I think that was really encouraging that it's, it's quite realistic for us to present our research, not just to our peers, but also to the public. Yes, I think we learned, you know, lead with the local or localise the lead. Sydney researchers have found, so if we're running this in Melbourne, Melbourne researchers have found, if you've got a collaboration, you could almost issue two press releases for your two collaborative partners to get the local media. I was just going to add that before this couple of days, I thought that if I saw research in the media, it was the reporter who had read the paper or, or read the press release and then contacted the researcher. But there's so many ways that we as researchers can be proactive and make it easy for the reporters to report on our research. So we can put it in front of their face and say, we've got a patient who you can come and film. We've already filmed some footage from the lab. It's going to take you five minutes and you're going to get a, a, a three-minute news slot and you're going to save half a day for there. So it's a win-win. I didn't realise how valuable that would be for them. That you can actually take charge of your story and own your story. I think that was the other thing is, you know, the scientists are often a bit nervous. What are the journalists going to ask me? I don't know what they're going to say. What do they want from me? And the journalist is going, oh, my God, I've got to go and interview this expert at Macquarie Uni today. They're such, you know, smart people. What am I going to ask them? And realising that it's actually, it's your story. The journalist is coming to you saying, so, what have you done? And one of the tricky questions they were asked was, so... Tell me about your research. Where do I start? Where do I start? So did you find that? It was very interesting. I never thought that actually the media is interested about research. I was thinking always about, interested about uh, politics. <laughs> so yesterday it was a very good experience because our, uh, we engineers, we like to be isolated, staying in the lab and doing something and at the end publish something. But now a new world actually has been opened for me. So... It is very important, actually, to advertise your work, you know, publicize your work, and so on. You also got a tip off that Peter Hannan, the environment reporter for Sydney Morning Herald, has an electric vehicle. So, you know, you got a tip off, absolutely, that's who you should approach. So think about, read the media outlets. Don't just read the media that you enjoy reading. Read other media outlets and see how they're reporting on it. It's not often we want to see ourselves in the ABC or the Sydney Morning Herald, but in fact, we also need to get research onto Channel 7 News, into, dare I say it, the Daily Telegraph, because, you know, there's a lot of people that read it. Dane and Paul, tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm, I'm Dane McKamey. I'm the Associate Dean Engagement at UNSW Science, uh, and this is Paul. And I'm also from UNSW Division of Research. So our runner-up for the, the first part, the pitch, was... Eleanor Hortle. Congratulations. We thought her presentation was extraordinarily clear and well put and quite impactful. But the winner of the first half of the evening was Adam. Mm. 
So a controversial choice, I know, given Adam's not a Sydney cider, but we'll let that slide. We're extremely impressed with the clarity with which you put your argument and the excitement that it caused through all ages of the audience. <laughs> and our winner for the poetry half of the evening was, from UNSW, Joel. And keep an eye out for these stories because we hope that they're going to be on the radio, on television and in the newspapers coming out soon. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you at Fresh Science next year. That was Sarah Brooker from Science in Public with the Fresh Science Poetry Challenge. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science 
a richer, more rewarding life.